On November 13, 1974, a 28-year-old woman is killed in a one-car accident in Crescent, Oklahoma. However, her actions as an activist against a leading nuclear company lead to many unanswered questions. Was it an accident or was it murder? You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Karen Silkwood. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist. Because <laughs> it's a thousand percent humidity in the state of Georgia. It's rained every day for the last eight days, but I'm not complaining about the rain because we all know in about a month it'll be dry as a bone. Yeah. But the good news is we got us uh, some new uh, five-star reviews. We got some... Uh, Small business shout-outs to do. We got a lot to do, man. Yeah, we do. These guys are funny, smart, and and it just cuts it off from... Hold on. And Southern. What more could you want? Is that what it is? Yeah. This is from Olive425. I'm a true crime junkie and was on a missing 411 binge after watching the David Pilatus documentaries. You guys did a great job covering the Aaron Hedges case, which is super weird, which is a super weird one. Love hearing some good old Georgia boys talk true crime. Not to mention you guys have some great commentary and I like hearing your theories. I'm from Georgia, grew up in Buford, born and raised. Thanks guys. I'll be binging your other episodes now. Thank you so much, everybody that takes the time out of their day to give us a five-star review we are certainly appreciate it buford good football out there yeah at one time they had one state in every classification up to i think they're 5a now i'm not sure they are a powerhouse i will say that but they recruit their asses off we got small business shout out and this is from miss olivia reynolds and she is the one that gave us the Olive 425 review. Oh, awesome. Uh, she said that she didn't know if we could see it, but she included the review on her email. But she says, I have a small marketing business and provide social media services to small businesses, local or not. And then I followed up with her and she said that she does not have a physical location. It's solely online and she operates out of her home in South Carolina. She has a passion for social media, marketing, and working with brands to create their best image online. She has over four years of experience working with growing brands. I have seen time and time again how social media positively impacts a video. Video. A business. <laughs> My services include social media services, advertising services, digital creation, and graphic designs. And we will post a link to her website so you can get in touch with her and it is social via olivia so s-o-c-i-a-l-v-i-a-o-l-i-v-i-a dot or purred squarespace.com so we will definitely be uh getting in touch with miss olivia reynolds because we are clueless (laughs) (laughs) So, y'all, if you are in the market for any of those things, uh, digital creation, graphic design, social media, advertising, whatever you need, let's reach out to her and let's blow her business up. So, 
today we are circling back. We're going to circle back to the Angry Scotsman Beer Company in Oklahoma. If you'll remember from episode 70, the August Riger episode. We Rieger. August Rieger. Rieger. Yeah, we I did that during the episode, too. I know. You'll remember that we procured some Impulse IPA, and I was happy enough to have my sister-in-law bring us some more. And so we, again, are in using the beer of the week is Angry Scotsman Impulse IPA. Thank you, Angry Scotsman. So this week's case is a fan request from Mr. Chet Ball. And he's been busting our tails to uh, finally get this one on the docket. So he's going to be extremely happy. This is the case of Karen Silkwood. Born Karen Gay. She lived in Longview, Texas and was the daughter of Merle and William she grew up in Nederland, Texas, had two sisters, Linda and Rosemary, and attended Lamar University in Beaumont. In 1965, she married William Meadows, an oil pipeline worker with whom she had three children. Now, following the couple's bankruptcy due to Meadows' overspending and in the face of Meadows' refusal to end an extramarital affair, she left him in 1972 and moved to Oklahoma City. She kicked him to the curb. Where she briefly worked as a hospital clerk. Now, it is unclear on the circumstances, but when she moved to Oklahoma City, she left her children with her ex-husband. And at the time, they were 5, 3, and 18 months. I could not find... That's that's weird. Yes, it's for, extreme. For a mom to leave kids that age. Especially in the 70s, because back then, daddies wasn't getting custody. No, not at all. Now, Karen took a $4 an hour job as a metallography technician at the Cimarron Plutonium Plant operated by Kerr McGee near Crescent, Oklahoma. Her job included polishing fuel rods packed with the radioactive element plutonium. I just added an extra key. <laughs> plutonium. While at the plant, she joined the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Works Union, who staged a strike at Cimarron not long after Karen began working there. Yeah, but that strike's going to fail, right? Yes, it is. And many of the workers severed ties with the union because the strike failed. Karen, however, who had become a member of the bargaining committee, which was she was the first woman to hold that position in the union's history, was charged with investigating health and safety issues at the plant. Now, Karen believed in nuclear power and planned a future at Kerr-McGree when she first arrived in 1972, but as she learned about plutonium's hazards, she slowly turned into a critic of upper management. Her co-workers respected her candor, and in 1974, they elected her to the local steering committee of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers International Union, or the OCAW. Now, on September 26, 1974, a few months after her election, Karen was invited to the OCAW's Washington offices where she told the union legislative official that Kerr McGee's plant was sloppy, dishonest, and unsafe. Now, a Mr. Steve Wadka, a young... OCAW health expert persuaded Karen to work undercover for the OCAW and gather company files which would corroborate her allegations. However, 
the spy would soon be found out. So a little background on Kerr McGee. They were a leader in the nuclear industry at the time, and in 1951, the company became the first oil producer to decide that nuclear power could be a profitable supplement to petroleum. And they quickly ranked as the country's largest uranium supplier. In the early 70s, it helped pioneer the move to plutonium, and it was more valuable but also more dangerous than the old reactors using uranium. Now, the late Robert Kerr, the company's founder, was governor of Oklahoma. He ran for president as the Democratic nominee in 1952. And at the time of his death in 1963, he was one of the most powerful men in the Senate. Dean McGee, his protege and successor as head of the corporation, advised President Kennedy on defense policies and President Ford on energy policies. So now we get to the evening of November the 5th, and plutonium-239 was found on Karen's hands. She had been working in a glove box in the metallurgy laboratory where she was grinding and polishing plutonium pellets that would be used in the fuel rods. And to give you an ex- a, a visual, the glove box is like you see in the old... You got to put your hands in the big rubber gloves and it's under a hood and it's vacuum sealed. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the glove box. At 6.30 p.m., she decided to monitor herself for alpha activity with the detector that was mounted on the glove box and it was going off at the time. The right side of her body read 20,000 disintegrations per minute or about nine nanocuries mostly on the right sleeve and shoulder of her coveralls. You're talking gibberish yes. to me, brother. We're going to get into that because it took me forever. <laughs> we got a little you're, side story on that one, too. Yeah, you're definitely on a watch list. <laughs> yes, I am. She was then taken to the plant's health and physics office where she was given a test called a nasal swipe. This test measures a person's exposure to airborne plutonium, but might also measure plutonium that got on a person's nose from their hands. The swap showed an activity of 160 disintegrations per minute, which was a positive and a modest positive result. Now, the two gloves in the glove box that she was using were replaced. And strangely, the gloves were found to have no plutonium on the outside surface, but on the inside surface... It was found on the right glove to have a lot of plutonium. There were no leaks in the gloves. So that plutonium had to have been placed inside that glove for her to have come in contact with it. So someone is poisoning her deliberately, very deliberately. Now, no plutonium was found on the surfaces in the room where she had been working, and there was no plutonium found on filter papers from the two air monitors in the room. By 9 p.m., Karen's cleanup had been completed, and as a precautionary measure, she was put on a program in which her total urine and feces were collected for five days for plutonium measurements. She returned to the lab and worked until 1.10 a.m., but did no further work in the actual glove boxes. As she left the plant, she monitored herself with another, I think it's a handheld device, and, they f- and she found nothing. Now, let's get into the p- 
Plutonium 239. And this is from Mr. Chuck Ball. He was good enough to send us his notes, and he was working away. So what is Plutonium 239? Well, it's an isotope of plutonium, and it is the primary fissile isotope used for the production of nuclear weapons, although uranium-235 is also used for that purpose. Plutonium-239 is also one of the three main isotopes demonstrated usable as fuel in thermal spectrum nuclear reactors, along with uranium-235 and uranium-233. Now, plutonium-239 has a half-life of only 24,110 years, and that's roughly the same as Betty White. I got nothing. I get nothing. <laughs> so rumors began to um, swirl about the poisoning, and then we'll get into that. But what I wanted to say was the amount of what is considered lethal plutonium. And if we, as a podcast, were not on a watch list, I personally now am. Because I spent over two hours Googling <laughs> what is the fatal dose of 239. <laughs> How much can a body take of plutonium? How much plutonium would kill you? How much plutonium would not kill you? So, I mean, there's like for two hours straight, there my Google machine was nothing but definitely monitored by the FBI. I was so scared that I told the coach in a text that <laughs> I was waiting on the van to pull up bad we actually had another super fan and we love our fans because they help us out so much they're so sweet to us but uh, Mr. Jesse Bucholtz sent a screenshot of basically what an average dose or acceptable surface contamination level is, what is a maximum, and then what, if it's over a certain, that surface has to be removed. So for the, now I did find Mr. Chris Shepard sent out a nuclear industry CDC pamphlet, and it just went over what was acceptable if you worked in a nuclear plant, which, you know, that's not going to help us a whole lot. Okay, so what we're looking at is... An average doses per minute, I think is what I said, and you said I was speaking Greek. You definitely are speaking Greek. I'm, I'm just going to sit back and let you talk because I, I have no idea what's going on. So the right side of her body read 20,000 disintegrations per minute, and that is the measurement of plutonium. The average background run-of-the-mill is 5,000 disintegrations per minute. Okay. Per square or per 100 centimeter squared. So basically, you just take your little area and you swap it, and then you measure that, that swap. That's an average. That's background. I'm just going to have to take your word for it. The maximum that you can have on a surface is 15,000 disintegrations per minute. Her right side of her body measured 20,000. Oh, that's a lot. Yes. That's more than you said. Yes. So that is above the fatal dose. Now, we get into the nano. It's not nanocuries. It's, I think it's nanocuries from Marie Curie. Okay. Whatever. I, I know. you just. I could talk you into anything right now. Yeah. You, you can convince me of anything. But we're going to go with those. Okay. So keep that in mind. Like 5,000 is kind of background. I've got it. Not a big deal. Yeah, Fif man. Over 15,000, you're in trouble. Yeah, I've got you it. got it. I got it marked down. I see you writing it down. 
I'm ready to go, man. All uh, right. We're good. So let's get off that soapbox and let's go to another one. So in the evening of November the 5th, now this is the night that she was initially, or an, she initially found that she had been, she had come in contact. That's when she left at 1.10 a.m. So she goes home, and then she returns to work at 7.30 a.m. the next day on November the 6th. She examined metallographic prints and performed paperwork for an hour, then monitored herself as she left the laboratory to attend the meeting. Although she had not worked at the glove box that morning, the detector registered alpha activity on her hands. Now, again, the health physics staff found further activity on her right forearm and the right side of her neck and face and proceeded to decontaminate her. At her request, a technician checked her locker and an au her automobile with an alpha detector, but could not find any readings. So again, she goes into work. She's not at the glove box. She's been contaminated again the second time. Now, on November the 7th, Karen reported to the health physics office at about 7.50 a.m. with her bioassay kit, and that is a kit that she had to collect four urine samples and one fecal sample. But let's just take a sidebar here because we're kind of sick and twisted. If you're monitoring my pee and poo <laughs> for five days and I only bring you one poo, I'm sick. <laughs> like, this boy is on a regular poo schedule. <laughs> I have no comment about my poo schedule. Now, they did a nasal swipe after she turned in her bioassay kit, and there was significant levels of alpha activity. They found 1,000 to 4,000 disintegrations per minute on her hands, arms, chest, neck, and right ear. Now, the preliminary results of her bioassay samples showed 30,000 to 40,000 disintegrations per minute in her fecal sample. That's almost double the maximum level. From what I know about what you've said, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> they checked her uh, locker and her automobile again, and again they found no readings. I kind of have this in my notes, and we'll, this will be the last time I give you all the science lesson. The actual radioactivity of a substance representing the number of atoms decaying per minute by alpha, beta, and or gamma radiations, or radiation. DPM is calculated is a calculated value based on the detector's uh, CPM and efficiency in measuring the radiation. Anything measured on a surface in a nuclear work area must be at, oh, I'm sorry, must be under, 20,000 if you're working in the like the glove box so if you're in the glove box you can have a 20,000 reading but it's got to stay under that because you are protected by the the hood that's lead line and you've got the lead line gloves so clearly she's being poisoned by somebody but why correct where does that that's the question that i have that i'm sure our listeners have is why why is she, why is this happening to her Following the cleanup, the Kerr-McGee health physicist accompanied her to her apartment. 
which she actually shared with another laboratory analyst, Miss Sherry Ellis. They investigated her apartment and found significant levels of activity in the bathroom and the kitchen and lower levels of activity in other rooms. In the bathrooms, they found over 100,000 DPMs on the toilet seat. Oh, wow. 40,000 DPMs on the floor mat and 20,000 DPMs on the floor. In the kitchen, this is the one that's a shocker. I don't know how she was still alive. They found 400,000 DPMs on a package of bologna and cheese in the refrigerator. 20,000 DPMs on the top of a cabinet. 20,000 DPMs on the floor. 25,000 DPMs on the stove sides. And 6,000 DPMs on a package of chicken. In the bedroom, they registered between 500 and 1,000 DPMs on the pillowcases and between 500 and 2,000 DPMs on the actual bed sheets. They estimated that there was probably less than 300 micrograms of plutonium in her apartment. You can have 5 micrograms or less in a lifetime of just background plutonium that occurs in nature, and it doesn't hurt you. They found just under 300 in her apartment. They could not find any readings outside the apartment. Now, her roommate, Sherry Ellis, was found to have two areas of low-level activity on her, so they send Karen and Sherry back to the plant where Sherry and her go through another decontamination. When asked how the alpha activity got into her apartment, Karen said that what she produced well, or when she produced a urine sample that morning at the plant, she had spilled some of the urine and she wiped it off, wiped off the container and the bathroom floor with a tissue and disposed of it in the commode. She went on to say that she had taken a package of bologna from the refrigerator intending to make a sandwich for her lunch, but then, and I don't understand this, she carried the bologna into the bathroom and laid it on the closed toilet seat. Yeah, I mean, that's normal. Yeah. Don't I make my bologna, sa- bologna yeah. and cheese sandwiches right there on the toilet lid. I always do that. Okay. Just making sure. That's, that's, that's a normal routine, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with it. I mean. Especially in the 70s. It makes it makes perfect sense that you would. Uh, make a sandwich on the do toilet. Toilet, <laughs> toilet sandwiches. <laughs> perfectly normal, right? Yeah. I mean, that's perfectly normal. <laughs> well, after she got all that stuff in the bathroom, she decided that she. Wasn't going to make a sandwich because she remembered that she had some leftovers from the day before. Yeah. So she returns all that. (laughs) You put the toilet bologna back in the fridge. Right. With the toilet cheese. Yeah, exactly. Now, between October 22nd and November 6th, high levels of activity had been found in four of the urine samples that Karen had collected at home. And those registered anywhere between 30,000 DPMs and 1.6 million DPMs. Holy shit. Yeah. Those samples that they collected from her at the plant was sent to Los Alamos. And that's a big deal. Because at the time, that's where they were making the big bombs. Now, the amount of plutonium at Karen's apartment started raising eyebrows. And Kerr McGee, why do I have a hard time saying that? I have no idea. I just want to chew it up. Kerr McGee arranged for Karen 
Her roommate, Sherry, and Karen's boyfriend, Drew Stevens, who had also spent time at her apartment to go to Los Alamos for testing. So on Monday, November the 11th, the three met with Dr. George Voles, the leader of the Laboratory Health Division at Los Alamos. He explained that all of their urine and feces would be collected and that several whole body and lung counts would have to be taken. That doesn't sound like it's going to be fun. No, not at all. They would also be monitored for external activities. So the next day, Dr. Bowles informed Sherry and Karen's boyfriend, Drew, that their test showed a small but insignificant amount of plutonium in their bodies. Karen, on the other hand, had 0.34 nanocuries of americium-241, and that is a gamma-emitting daughter of plutonium-241 in her lungs. I don't really know what all that means, but I know it's not good if it's in your lungs. Based on that amount, Dr. Voles estimated that Karen had about six or seven nanocuries of plutonium-239 in her lungs, or less than half the maximum permissible lung burden for nuclear workers. So basically, anything over 16 nanocuries is lethal. Dr. Voles reassured Karen that hers were around six or seven, and based upon his experience with workers that had had much larger amounts in their bodies, she should not be concerned about developing cancer or dying from radiation poisoning. She expressed her concerns about her ability to have children or the fact that maybe she would cause her previous children to become deformed with contact. Dr. Bowles reassured her that that was not the case and everything should be fine. I don't, I don't think that you can reassure me enough. No. If you find... Plutonium and americium in my lungs? I'm not going back to work. No, I certainly wouldn't. So Karen, Sherry, and Drew all returned to Oklahoma City on November the 12th. Karen and Sherry reported for work the next day, but they were restricted from further radiation. After work that night, Karen went to a union meeting in Crescent, Oklahoma. At the end of that meeting, at about 7 p.m., she left alone in her white Honda. Now, before leaving on November the 13th, she collected the results of her undercover work in a manila folder and headed for a Holiday Inn in Oklahoma City to meet Steve Wodka. Now, remember, he is the OCAW occupational health expert that asked her to spy on Kerr McGee. At the Holiday Inn was also going to be her boyfriend, Drew Stevens, and a New York Times reporter, David Burnham. So she left work at around 7 p.m., so let's say at the latest, 7.15. Well, at 8.05, the Oklahoma State Highway Patrol was notified of a single car accident roughly seven miles south of Crescent, Oklahoma. The driver was Karen Silkwood. She was pronounced dead at the scene from multiple injuries. An Oklahoma State trooper who investigated the accident reported that Karen's death was a result of a classic, quote-unquote, one-car sleeping driver accident. The highway patrolman who recovered Karen's body from a Highway 74 culvert said he noticed several documents scattered in the mud and tossed them in the back of her wrecked Honda. And we will post a picture of this wrecked Honda. It is crunched. Bad. The manila folder and the documents somehow go missing the next day when Drew Stevens 
Mr. Wadka and the New York Times reporter get their hands on the car after it was released by authorities. Now, because an autopsy showed traces of alcohol and a sedative in her bloodstream, the Oklahoma Highway Patrol ruled that Karen had fallen asleep and drifted off the road to her death. Later, blood tests performed as part of the autopsy showed she had 0.35 milligrams of methaqualone, which is a quaalude, per 100 milliliters of blood at the time of her death. That is almost twice the recommended dosage for inducing drowsiness. About 50 milligrams of undissolved methaqualone remained in her stomach. Yeah, the question is, if she's going to meet a New York Times reporter, why on earth would she be taking quaalude? And not just a quaalude. It sounds like she had lots of quaaludes there. Yeah, a lot. So that's going to be a very big mystery. At the request of the Atomic Energy Commission and the Oklahoma State Medical Examiner, Dr. J. Chapman, who was concerned about performing an autopsy on someone reportedly contaminated with plutonium, a team from Los Alamos was sent to take radiation measurements and assist in the autopsy. Dr. Voles, Dr. Michael Stewart, Alan Valentine, and James Lawrence comprised the team. Because Karen's death was an accident, the coroner did not legally need consent from her next of kin to perform the autopsy, but he did contact the father who did give him permission over the phone. So the autopsies performed on November the 14th, 1974 at the University Hospital in Oklahoma City. Specimens were collected, preserved, and retained by Dr. Chapman for his pathological and toxicological examination. At the request of the coroner and the Atomic Energy Commission, certain organs and bone specimens were removed, packaged, frozen, and brought back to Los Alamos for analysis of their plutonium content. Because Karen had been exposed to plutonium and had undergone in vivo plutonium measurements, her tissue was also used in the Los Alamos Tissue Analysis Program to determine her actual quote-unquote plutonium body burden. The distribution of the plutonium between different organs of her body and the distribution within her lung. So on November the 15th, a small sample of her liver, lung, stomach, gastrointestinal tract, and bone were selected and analyzed. The data indicated clearly that there were 3.2 nanocuries in the liver, 4.5 nanocuries in the lungs, and a little more than 7.7 nanocuries in her whole body. These measurements agreed well with the in vivo measurements made before her death, which measured around 6 or 7. There was no significant deposit of plutonium in any other tissues, including her skeleton. The highest concentration measured were in the contents of her gastrointestinal tract and in her fecal sample. This proved that she had somehow ingested the plutonium prior to her death. It also proves that she was poisoned very near her death because it did not have time to show up in her bones. Now, with the exception of the left lung, the remaining unanalyzed tissues were repackaged and kept frozen until it was determined whether or not additional analysis was required. The left lung was thawed, inflated with dry nitrogen until it was approximately the size that it would have been in her chest and refrozen in that configuration. 
It was packed in an insulated shipping container in dry ice and sent to the lung counting facility at the Los Alamos Health Research Laboratory. The data were then compared with the two in vivo measurements made prior to her death. As expected, without the ribs and associated muscle attenuating the x-rays from the americium 241, the results of her left lung measured post-mortem were about 50% higher, but not inconsistent with the previous in vivo results. So again, she had been poisoned very near her time of death because it had not had time to get in deep in her tissues. Some of the most interesting observations made during Karen's tissue analysis was, one, the distribution of the plutonium within her lung, and two, the concentration of the plutonium in the lung relative to that in the tracheal lymph nodes. After the frozen lung was returned to the tissue analysis laboratory, the superior lobe was divided horizontally into sections. Those sections were further divided into two parts, the outer layer of the lung and the inner soft tissues of the lung. The plutonium concentrations in the inner and outermost parts of her lungs were about equal. That is in stark contrast with, so not only had she ingested it, but she had inhaled it. The difference was an indication that she had probably been exposed less than 30 days prior to her death so now the concentration of the plutonium in her lung was about six times greater than that in her lymph nodes, whereas in, in typical cases, that ratio should be about 0.1. Both of those results indicated that Siltwood had received very recent exposure and supported the view that the plutonium tends to migrate from the inner part to the outer part of the lung and to the lymph nodes over time. So it did not even have time to get to her lymph nodes. All right, now that all the science lesson is over and everybody's already half asleep, <laughs> we'll get into the conspiracy part of this damn story. But I felt like it was necessary to bore you to death just to explain how god-awful she had been infected. This was not just a chance encounter. Someone had poisoned this young oh, lady. Oh, yeah, she was very deliberately poisoned. So we get to the missing folder. So when the OCAW learned that the folder was missing... It hired an auto accident specialist, Mr. A.O. Pipkin, and he was a former Albuquerque, New Mexico policeman, and he was charged to investigate the possibility of foul play. Possibility, my ass. So, on November 19th, Pipkin stated that he had discovered substantial evidence, which was a fresh dent in Karen's Honda's rear bumper, along with inconsistencies with the highway's contour and skid marks at the scene. This all together indicated she was the victim of a hit and run who had forced her off the road. Now, the same day, a Kerr-McGee security chief, James Reading, began compiling a dossier on Pipkin. Now, why would you compile a dossier on an investigator if you were not culpable? I'm just thinking out loud here. Sorry. So Reading phoned a cooperative captain in the New Mexico State Police Intelligence Division and actually hired a Pinkerton security agent to investigate the investigator. But the only thing they could find was that maybe he had had a couple of IRS problems back in 1955. So this boy is squeaky clean. 
So Reading later claimed that Kermagee needed the dossier for a lawsuit the company expected to be filed on behalf of Karen by her family. Kermagee did not want Karen's death to turn into an anti-company media circus, but that did not explain why the company was worried about a lawsuit, assuming it had no complicity in her death. Very interesting. Very interesting. So a year and a half later, Jacques Zrogi, a part-time journalist from Nashville, came up with an answer. The key to the mystery, she said, was in the missing manila folder. Karen must have unwittingly collected documents that would have uncovered a nuclear smuggling ring at the plant. She theorized that the smugglers must have poisoned Karen with the plutonium to scare her and to keep her quarantined and away from other Kerr-McGee files. And when Karen returned to the plant, they ran her off the road and stole her folder. And she's on record as stating, quote, Karen Silkwood must have had figures in her possession which not only pinpointed the exact amount of nuclear material missing, but the persons involved as well. She didn't know the time bomb she was carrying, end quote. This journalist, Jacques, 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 I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you pronounce since she's from Nashville. I'm pretty sure you pronounce it Jack A, like mm-hmm. Jackie. But anyway, she knew a little bit about the case because she had an old friend, Larry Olson, who was an FBI agent who had actually investigated Karen's death. Larry was 44 years old at the time and a 15-year veteran of the FBI, and he didn't really think anything about it because. He had seen it in the papers and on the local news channel. But when the New York Times called national attention to the investigator that stated that Karen was a victim of a hit and run, the FBI assigned him to the case. They say that he was picked because he was an Oklahoma native and one of his regular duties was to serve as the FBI's liaison to Kermagee already. Now, he would later tell congressional investigators that um, his first order of business was to go visit Kermagee's headquarter in Oklahoma City, where he chatted it up with the security chief reading and a retired FBI agent, W.C. Spot Gentry. (laughs) I love these nicknames, man. Yeah, that's a good name. As a result, so after Olson meets with Spot Gentry and the security chief reading, they explain to Olson that, and this is according to reading, that Karen was making up allegations about the company. And all of these allegations should be disqualified because, quote, lesbians don't care, they'll do anything, end quote. And because narcotics paraphernalia had been found in her apartment. Which, that has nothing to do with the fact that she got poisoned. Now, you have to keep in mind, this is the early 70s, and homosexuality was extremely frowned upon in the public eye. I know that's hard to believe. I'm glad we've moved past that. You know, if you're if you're a love who you want to love. Yeah, exactly. And be proud of it. Yeah. 
Olsen would interview some of Karen's friends, but in his honest opinion, there was no evidence or very thin evidence of her being bisexual or using narcotics. He did find a beaker from the plant that she had taken home to cook with, which I don't know why you would take a beaker from a nuclear facility to cook with, but hey, whatever you want to do. I mean, it's like making a bologna and cheese sandwich on the toilet lid. I mean, you do you, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So Olsen would turn to the trace amounts of alcohol that were found in Karen's bloodstream, and for for a while he was obsessed with finding the source of the alcohol. He checked with the cafe where she had eaten supper and chased leads as far as Idaho, but the alcohol, regardless of where it came from, was not enough to actually contribute to her falling asleep at the wheel. What was significant was the amount of methaqualone that was left in her system at the autopsy. Now, if she's sneaking around and making copies of documents late at night, her nerves are going to be frayed. And they find out that months before she passed away, a doctor had actually prescribed a quaalude to help her sleep at night. But her friends say she was also taking them during the day because she was a nervous wreck. The question is whether 0.35 milligrams, which is less than one pill, was enough to lull her asleep as she drove down Highway 74. The Oklahoma City Medical Examiner says yes. However... Eight other independent toxicologists interviewed on a, I didn't even know this was a program because I was like four. No, actually, I was not even born yet. On the ABC's Reasoner Report and NPR and at a congressional subcommittee disagreed with the medical examiner because they felt like if she had been prescribed a quaalude to help her sleep, she had built up a toler- a little bit of a tolerance by the time a month later, um, uh, within one month, you you build up a tolerance. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she'd been doing them for much longer than that. Well, just because you you were prescribed them doesn't mean you weren't accessing them beforehand. True. Olson also became preoccupied with the flecks of plutonium that appeared on her skin and in her digestive tract. Now, a Kerr-McGee official wrote in a January 1975 letter to the Atomic Energy Commission, quote, the most reasonable explanation seems to be that the gastrointestinal contamination was caused by self-administration by employee Silkwood. You just going to eat, munch on some plutonium pellets when you're hungry? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's normal, right? That's, that's what everybody does. You, you don't have time for lunch, so you just, you know, eat some plutonium well, <laughs> according to Kerr McGee, she, she deliberately swallows a microscopic dose and somehow is able to walk past the alpha counters at all the doors that will not let you out if you are contaminated. But somehow she did. This is around the same time that she is turning in her urine and fecal samples. So why would she keep, I don't know, was she trying to doctor her samples to prove that the plant was chronically unsafe. That's a theory that Kerr McGee floated around. Now, Olson had no doubt what Kerr McGee was up to, and he began to grow suspicious about the company's assessment of Karen's role in all of this. Her friends informed him that she had been genuinely scared when she discovered her 
insides were full of plutonium. And she was deathly afraid of cancer. If she's freaking out, that's not that contradicts everything Kermagee is saying that she's doing. So Olson had a counter theory. His counter theory was that she had slipped a vial of plutonium into the old prison pocket. <laughs> then used a syringe to spike her samples at home, accidentally spilling some in I'm the so process. Wait, I'm sorry. If you don't know what the prison pocket is, that's the old butthole. <laughs> <laughs> the old brown starfish. Olsen tested the syringe that was found in her apartment and could not find anything radioactive in it. So that throws that one out. And that Olsen also states that this was also not logical. 73 workers at the plant had been contaminated in the previous four years. One more could not be that much more embarrassing for the company and hardly worth the risk to Karen. But what nagged Olsen was most of all the bologna and cheese in her refrigerator. They had found that the highest concentrations of plutonium in the apartment was in those two sandwich foods. And Olson is on record stating, quote, the Atomic Energy Commission had no idea how it got there, and I don't either. For a while, I thought maybe she had been abusing herself with a ring of baloney and that the plutonium had gotten on that way. But I checked and found it was sliced baloney. If you didn't catch what I just quoted him as saying, I'm, I'm going to need you to rewind it because I'm not saying it again. While Olson was considering all avenues... NPR reported that the Atomic Energy Commission was worried about 40 pounds of plutonium that could not be accounted for at the Kerr-McGee plant. 40 pounds of plutonium went missing. At the same time, David Burnham, the reporter that was going to meet Karen at the Holiday Inn, quoted government sources saying that up to 60 pounds of plutonium might be missing, not 40 and in that quantity, that is some highly lucrative material. Where do you store it, though? Like, piece of shit out of me? <laughs> Hell, this is seventies. You gonna get you a lead box? I don't know, man. Like, where do you put it? Where do you even try to hide it? Like, it's radioactive. It's dangerous. What do you do with it? I don't know. But see, the thing is, back then there was only, really, the only people that had the world supply was either the U.S the Soviet bloc, or like the Western European nations like England and France and that stuff. There wasn't that many people that were dealing with... So if you if you somehow got 40 to 60 pounds of plutonium and was going to use it on the black market, you could make a killing. Oh, for sure. So once they find all this out, Kerr-McGee tries to spin it that Karen is stealing the plutonium. Oh, yeah. She she took it all, man. She's putting 40 pounds up the old prison pocket. Yeah, she she took it all. She ate One it. One piece at a time. <laughs> <laughs> she she ate it. She, you know, she was just, you know, it's just her lunch, you know, for several weeks. She just decided, screw it, man. I'm just going to eat plutonium. So the theory is that she was stealing it. And this is the Reader's Digest version, because if I don't go over, if I don't give you the Reader's Digest version, we'll be here forever. But the Reader's Digest version is she was stealing the plutonium, and she was doing so to draw attention of how crappy Kerr-McGee was not to actually sell it. There's a huge letterhead memo from 
Olson's boss. So we'll get into that right now. So in early of not January of 75, he took, Olson did, his theory to Ted Rossack, the acting agent in charge of the FBI's Oklahoma City office. So his boss, immediate boss in Oklahoma City. So Olson wanted permission to open up a new line of investigation into the alleged disappearance of the missing plutonium. Rossack hesitated and then decided to discuss the situation with a friend of his who happened to be the agent in charge at the Atlanta Bureau, William DeBruyler. They, DeBruyler convinces them to go ahead and kick it up to FBI headquarters in Washington. And so Olson prepares an official, quote, letterhead memo outlining all the evidence, being careful not to sound reckless or foolish. And they let DeBruyler read over it. And he gives them the go-ahead, so Rossack attaches it, and he sends it up the chain of command. What is stunning is Olson and Rossack was sent a communique that said, quote, Washington sent back my letterhead memo telling me to forget about the missing plutonium. It didn't have anything to do with Karen Silkwood. In effect, I was told not to poke my nose where it didn't belong. So you kick up a memo to the brass of the FBI in the 70s, in the height of the Cold War, that there's 40 to 60 pounds of missing plutonium, and they're like, hey, uh-uh, don't go look in there. there is no, that has nothing to do with Karen Silkwood. 40 to 60 pounds. I can't, I cannot. If you'd had 40 to 60 pounds of sugar, <laughs> that's a lot of damn sugar. It's a, it's a big amount. If you got 40 to 60 pounds of plutonium, you're talking pellet-sized in these fuel rods. You're not talking grams. I mean, not grams, but I'm not talking like pounds, these rods. I mean, I don't know. I just don't know where you would put it, where you, where you would store it safely. There's just nowhere for it to go. Unless, again, you had like an iron. You had a padded cell of pure iron. That would keep it contained, but, I mean, that's a dangerous, dangerous amount. Now, unlike Olson in the past, he's pissed. And so he contacts a news man at KTOK in Oklahoma City, Mr. Joe Pennington. And Pennington says that Olson was so outraged and confused, and he tried to explain to Pennington that there was a smuggling ring going on at the plant. That's the only way he could rationalize what was going on. So in early January, Pennington broadcast a report from a confidential Kerr-McGee source that had stated 40 to 50 pounds of plutonium seemed to be missing. In response to that report, Kerr-McGee sent a letter to station KTOK and stated, quote, the letter pointed out that I was reporting on a very sensitive area and that I might inadvertently be jeopardizing national security. Oh, there you go. That's how we're getting away with it, man. It's a, it's a matter of national security. You just can't talk about it. But after his broadcast about the smuggling ring, Pennington says, quote, I got the feeling from Kerr McGee was putting more pressure on the station, and it wasn't long before it was made clear to me that I was to drop the Silkwood story and move on to other things, end quote. And basically, he got pissed at his boss, and he left in early February for a job in Columbus, Ohio, before he was going to be fired. So now we get into, well, we go back to 
Olson. So it's not been very long that this reporter Pennington was in Columbus, Ohio, when Olson phones him again, and he tells him this time he had just learned from his source at Kerr-McGee that there wasn't 40 or 60 pounds missing. There was 120 pounds of plutonium that was missing since Karen's death. So now Olson's thinking he doubles down on Karen stealing it to make Kerr-McGee look bad, and he thinks that the OCAW is still operating a smuggling ring, ring to make everyone involved in Karen's case look bad. Pennington basically tells him, look, buddy, I'm no longer involved with that story. I'm in Ohio, and I'm not touching it. So the Justice Department, which, remember, has jurisdiction over the FBI, seemed in Olson's eyes to want to get all of this out of the way. So on February 12th, Phil Willens, who is the chief of the Justice Department's management and labor section, sent a memo to Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Keeney, which said that no criminality was involved in the case of Kerr McGee. Even though Phil had only seen three of the F 11 FBI reports Olson filed, the official end came extremely quickly in mid-April when Willens directed Thomas Goldstein, a lawyer in the management and labor section, to draft a, quote, fact memorandum. And now a fact memorandum usually takes a lot of time to because you have to go through all the case files and you're summarizing it. And it's, you know, anywhere from to 100, 200 pages. Well, this guy is given this task, and he pops one out that's about 13 pages long. Oh, wow. So to tell you that the people in Washington didn't want to play with this is an <laughs> understatement. Yeah, nobody really wanted to uh, address this. The, the the power plant got away with poisoning this woman. Now They got away with killing this woman. In this fact memorandum, and then we'll get into the other theories of the case. In this fact memorandum, they only focus on the hit-and-run scenario. So the tire tracks at the scene indicated that Karen had skidded violently off the left side of the Highway 74, then had straightened the wheel and driven along the shoulder for nearly 100 yards. She had not tried to return to the highway. This appears as if another car prevented her from doing so. Until the culvert is lurking in her vision... And frantically, she turns the steering wheel. This is in direct contrast to the falling asleep and drifting theory. Now, the drifting car, and they would simulate this much later, would have veered into a field before it even reached the culvert. And they also felt like the highway's centerline crest, which is going to steer you, if you're not paying attention, to the left or the right, actually would that car to the right away from the culvert even more not to the left add that to the dent in the Honda's rear bumper and you've got yourself a classic case of somebody forcing you off the road oh absolutely now one reason that they the Goldstein memo stated that she did fall asleep kind of throws caution to the wind they were saying that a furious wind furious it was furious <laughs> 
shoved the lightweight car to its destruction. Oh, really? A wind? Furious wind. Wind. Furious wind. Wind. Okay. Okay. So the Justice Department later described that it would ha- it was a 60 to 70 mile per hour howler. So it was a furious howler. We're going to put that on the t-shirt. Furious howler. We got to get on top of those t-shirts, man. <laughs> we got to get the wet-ass Mars t-shirt. Wet-ass Mars. Wet. Wet. <laughs> wet-ass. All right. So, but, so let's get back. I'm going to wrap this thing up, man. It's a little long. So... They're saying when she left work, the wind was blowing 60 to 70 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Sure. They forgot and didn't, they didn't check some things. Congressional investigators checked it and determined that Goldstein's information was pre- predicated solely on a tip from an anonymous caller who had phoned the FBI in Dallas, probably from the Grassy Knoll. Uh, that's what I'm assuming. Yeah. Now, neither Goldstein nor Olson at the time of his investigation bothered to check with the National Weather Service. And guess what the wind was that day? It was only 15 yeah. miles an hour out of the north. Yeah, no, not, not, not a lot. That's 15 mile, 15 mile an hour wind, that's definitely capable of pushing a car over. No, I mean, there was how many wrecks were there? There was there had to be tons of wrecks because of that wind. Tons. I mean, they I were mean, littered. There were semis tipped over everywhere. Now, Goldstein goes on to piss in the wind again. And says that the dent in Karen's bumper was made by the tow truck driver, Ted Sebring, when he dragged the Honda over the concrete wing wall. But, again, they didn't do their due diligence. And an auto crash expert for ABC stated that this was, quote, contact between two metal surfaces. Mm-hmm. So then, with this information, Goldstein triples down, I guess is what you would say, and he says that Drew Stevens, Karen's boyfriend, takes this Honda and dents the bumper with a sledgehammer to show that she was run off the road. I mean, they're just grasping at straws now. Now, I will leave you without going into the long tirade of Jackie Sroji and F- her... her dealings with the FBI, but it is very interesting because the FBI starts monitoring her and she actually takes another job out of Oklahoma and she's doing an expose on the USSR's theory of nuclear power and they see her talking to an embassy secretary who just happened to be a KGB colonel. So they think she's a spy, so they try to discredit her And that's another rabbit hole this case leads you down. But the biggest thing is 120 pounds of plutonium was missing from Kerr-McGee in Crescent, Oklahoma, months after Karen passed away. So we're going to wrap this thing up. I know you've been sitting there and you're like, man, these boys, they just don't know what they're talking about. So there's three basic questions. The first one is, was Karen carrying documents that are now missing? And that is, uh, yeah, she was. Not only do Kerr-McGee supervisors find out that she was collecting a dossier for the OCAW, two people actually saw Karen at a union meeting <laughs> the night of the accident carrying a large manila folder. One of them was her friend, Jean Jung, and she told 
reporters that Karen had told her the documents in the folder would, quote, get Kerr McGee. Another lady, Alma Hall, says that she sat next to Karen and remembers seeing typed and handwritten documents stuffed inside a manila folder. Keep in mind, State Trooper Rick Fagan, who was the first one on the scene of the single car crash, says he picked up papers matching that same description and tossed them in the back of the Honda. Kerr-McGee personnel are on record visiting the, gr- the garage where the car was st- stored twice. The first was around midnight, which was approximately five hours after the accident. They were under the guise of they were just checking to see if her car was contaminated. A Atomic Energy Commission inspector and Trooper Fagan accompanied these two Kerr-McGee representatives, but the Atomic Energy Commission states that documents could have been stolen without him noticing. The second time they visit the car, they do so without Fagan, and that was the following morning. So basically, they just tell, yeah, our car's over there, y'all go look at it, and then they don't watch them or anything. Now, the garage owner, Harold Smith, states that just before the visit from Kerr McGee, he had actually picked up a letter from the floorboard, and it was from some, quote, it was from somebody in Canada who was visiting, who was inviting Karen to a party. He puts it back, but he remembered it mentioned a cigarette machine that was going to roll some joints and had never heard of that expression before. Kerr McGee later quoted from this same letter when they tried to say that Karen was a pot-smoking lesbian. But neither the letter nor the document has ever been turned over by Kerr-McGee. Let's get into the second question. Is plutonium missing from the Kerr-McGee plant? Yes, the answer is yeah. Now, an article in the Rolling Stone magazine is quoted twice in 1974 that Kerr-McGee inventory was missing substantial amounts of plutonium over 20 pounds in February of 75. So they're, whatever they say they have, they have 20 extra pounds. Well, then in September, they're 20 pounds under what they're supposed to have. Both times, they would tell the Atomic Energy Commission it found the missing nuclear fuel through accounting adjustments or it was just lodged in some pipes. You know, because your plutonium gets lodged in pipes. The attorney or I'm sorry, the Atomic Energy Commission inspected and agreed that all 40 pounds had been recovered, even under ideal inspection conditions. You have to take the company's word because they're not going to let you tear apart a nuclear facility and stop production of power. Kerr-McGee would come out and say that there was no missing nuclear material. They also would then turn around and tell media that it was a matter of national security if it was missing or whether it wasn't missing because there was a lot of terrorists in the world. (laughs) So in January of 1975, shortly after Olson sent his, quote, letterhead memo requesting permission to investigate a smuggling ring at the plant, the Atomic Energy Commission sent three safety experts to inspect the plant's inventory and do a security check. In a letter to the regional director of the Atomic Energy Commission's commissioners, they asked to, quote, be kept on a day-to-day basis of the safeguards at the plant. 
At that time is when Olsen hears that there's 120 pounds of plutonium missing. It was at that point the Atomic Energy Commission stopped sending letters to Kerr McGee and instead increased their margin of error by over 250%. So they no longer wanted to know whether it was missing or whether it wasn't. Now, there's a part two to this second question, and that is who would be responsible for the missing plutonium? Karen didn't have the means to even steal it, much less market it. And I don't believe the OCAW was stealing it to make Kermagee look bad because they had been waving the flag that it was unsafe for years. Logistically, if you're going to steal 40 to 120 pounds of plutonium, it would take a bare minimum of probably 20 workers to do so if you were doing it on the foot or on the hoof. It would be easier to steal that amount of plutonium while it was being transported to a facility in Hanford, Washington. Because, just like in the old movies, you could get you a fake roadblock and then you could just steal it and nobody would be any wiser. But since Kerr McGee now had this huge plus or minus in their margin of error, we will never probably know. Now, according to the General Accounting Office in September of 76, they stated that at least 11,000 pounds of weapons-grade nuclear material, such as plutonium and uranium, was missing from plants across the country. So in 76, this is just mind-boggling. But anyway, what does this all mean? Well, what it comes down to is Kermagee could be selling it to countries that are not necessarily in the Atomic Energy Commission. So did Karen know about this? I think that's what she was. She's definitely a whistleblower. Right. I think that's what she had documents. I think she had those documents but didn't know she had those documents. She was concerned about the amount of radiation being transported. Exposed to the workers, but did she have more information than she even knew? Yeah, that's what I think. And that's basically, the last thing is, and the last theory is, the good old CIA was stealing it and sending it to Israel. And again, that's, when asked about it, the Justice Department stated in, I think they stated in early 76, that it was a matter of national security and they would not speak on the mishaps so i mean every turn you're met with cover-up you know dead ends even the fbi agent involved in investigating this sees dead ends everywhere theory wise i think you can really tie a bow around it and say that she was she had a task to find evidence of hazardous work conditions and unwilling or unknowing to her she was caught in the middle of a much larger conspiracy with missing plutonium and she did not realize she had those documents now another one is that and this goes along the way with israeli the cia selling to israel is that actually 
someone realized she had the documents and they sent an Israeli Mossad agent to kill her. I don't think it gets that deep. I think it was the company itself. I would think so too because it, I, I mean that, those are your so you've got three you've got three theories if you're looking at someone to kill her. The either the CIA let Israel know that there's this whistleblower screwing up their little pipeline and Israel sends a Mossad agent or the CIA preemptively sees what's going on if they kill her or B or I mean or C Kerr McGee knew that she was about to blow the top off 120 pounds of missing plutonium that they're selling to another country. I feel like it's probably that the the latter. Now Chuck, Mr. Chuck Ball, who sent us the stuff, his theory is the CIA, and he states that they roofied her drink at a labor meeting before she left for Oklahoma City to meet uh, Mr. Berman. I'm sorry, Burnham. That would explain the high levels of uh, quaaludes in her system at the time of her death. So a long, straight, two-lane blacktop at night, it could be quite easy for her to fall asleep. Interesting, though, she happened to fall asleep and a careen straight into a culvert as she did. After her death, a lawsuit was initiated by the family of Karen for $10 million, and the Kerr-McGee finally settled for a little bit shy of $1.3 million, 12 years after her death. A lot of people saw this as hush money, and a lot of people saw this as Kerr McGee in avoiding appeals if it was brought to court. So your question is, was it, did she happen to take one too many quaaludes that night because she was scared to death stealing all these paperwork, or did someone run her off the road? And I, I'm pretty sure she was run off the road. There's no way that... I don't believe the Quaalude theory. I just don't. She was killed, man. Oh, yeah. There is a book out there by Howard Kahn, Who Killed Karen Silkwood. There is another book out there called The Killing of Karen Silkwood by Richard Rashke. Both of those are very, very good reads. Uh, There was, I couldn't find any way of watching it. There was an old Faye Dunaway movie about her. Faye Dunaway played her. And this is way before Aaron Brockovich. It was Meryl Streep, though. It was Meryl Streep. I thought Faye it was Faye Dunaway. No, it was Meryl Streep. Okay, I'm sorry. Damn. Meryl Streep, bro. Jeez, man. Just calm yourself. Calm your tits. So, that is the case of Karen Silkwood. Hopefully, Mr. Chuck Ball, we did this case justice. I do appreciate you reaching out to us. We will post a lot of the pictures that he sent us on our social media showing the uh, car the accident scene and he actually sent us a gps coordinates for the actual fuel fabrication facility and i want to say that she wasn't but like less than three miles from her work so within three miles she passes out and hits a culvert i still don't buy that i think she was killed and i i feel like her mcgee is probably the leading suspect i'm not going out i'm not going to rule out the CIA or Mossad. I mean, if you screw up a, a supply chain there in the 70s, mm-hmm. I can see them stepping in. Definitely, but I think it was the company, man. Oh, I, I totally agree. Totally. I think 100% that company fucking murdered her, man. All right, man. Well, let's get into our recommendations. 
I'm going to recommend the Amazon series The Boys. I just finished it, and man, it is so freaking good. I had been meaning to watch it for a long time, and I finally got around to it, and it is phenomenal. So if you haven't seen The Boys, watch it. Imagine if Superman was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty good. I've seen a couple of My wife watched it, and... uh it's it's pretty good. It is amazing. So that's my recommendation. Well, I'm going to recommend that our listeners look up Ape Man Strong. It is a t-shirt company, and every month they honor a different charity, and proceeds from that month's sales go to that charity. I just happened to listen to Cigar Store Idiots episode with the president of Ape Man, Adam Field, and you can tell in that interview he is a genuine person. And if you want to hear some good, feel-good stories about the American spirit, opportunity, people doing right, you know, go to Ape Man Strong's website, read their mission statement, read what they're all about, and let's get behind those guys because they are doing a lot of good stuff out there. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Coach doesn't have anything else. I'm good, man. Deuces.